Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I'm your host, Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I'm a board-certified physician nutrition specialist. And I started this podcast to take the latest science and really help you figure out what you should do, can do, and eventually will do when it comes to food, fitness, and everything that's involved with helping you become the best version of yourself. Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I am so beyond thrilled at my guest today because I've been following her work for a long, long time. Um, and her latest book, Younger You, is really a must read for anybody who's interested in longevity, living longer and better. Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm, I'm really excited to get into it with you. But, but, Tell us a little bit about your background, too, and, and how you got here, because I, I, I'd i love to hear that story. Yeah, sure. I mean, I could go way back. I mean, I think a lot of us who end up in integrative medicine tend to have sort of a, a story. I mean, in fact, I will just say briefly, when it was time for me to uh, make a decision around medical school, I developed chronic fatigue. You know, the chronic fatigue was huge back then. And, you know, we thought that it was related to Epstein-Barr and you know, now maybe it's Lyme, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I, I developed it. I went to a lot of doctors. I didn't get better. Long story short, I um, my landlady referred me to her naturopathic physician who got me better with a little bit of support for my mitochondria. He gave me some CoQ10. He gave me some botanicals. He, just some gentle tweaks to my diet. I was in my my 20s, I wasn't going to do too much. Lo and behold, I got better. It was so, it, it, it deeply influenced me. And I decided to go to naturopathic medical school. I was also concurrently, I was working in a health food store in the supplement section. And I was pretty excited, believe it or not, about biochemistry, fatty acid biochemistry, like the, you know, the cosinoid biochemistry, why, why we take fish oil, basically. I was interested in the biochemistry of why we do that. And so, it, those things converged. I went to naturopathic medical college, but then I ended up getting to do a postdoc along with a residency in laboratory science in, in nutritional biochemistry. And it was that experience that really paved the way for me to be aware of the emerging extraordinary technologies and in and, 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 and laboratory science and how we could start to see how our genes are expressed, not just look at our genes, but how we turn them on and off. And this is the field of epigenetics. And so here I was a clinician with a clinical training, I'm in clinical practice, and, you know, with the science background, was looking at how our interventions in functional medicine influence gene expression along yeah go yeah no and I, I i think just for the audience to understand i think this is really 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 important because you know we all understand genetics and and um, on some level uh and and i i think the idea that your genetics are not your destiny that you really can yeah. influence how they're turned on and off how they express themselves whether you know whatever it is i i think and, and this is a very this is a relatively new field in medicine yeah. but you you came to it early but i, I think it's yeah. what's most exciting for me and why i've built my company around it and you've built your 
practice around it, I think, is is because you really do have control over it. And, and right. lifestyle choices, you know, head to toe, particularly nutrition, um, can really influence that. So how, I mean, but you got interested in epigenetics before it was cool. I mean, how did you stumble yeah. upon that? And yeah. because even, even the science wasn't as robust, even even a decade ago, in terms of yeah. how we assess that and how we assess the efficacy of the intervention. So, how, yeah. tell me a little bit about that journey because I think this I, field is fascinating. Yeah, and I again, I would, I I had it, I had an awareness of what was happening because of my background in laboratory science. I mean, it just sort of set me in a, in a slightly different trajectory than I think um, a traditional functional medicine clinician. Um, so we were, one of the things that we did was sort of translate the science for clinical um, action. So how do we think about what the merging science, how do we translate it through a functional integrative lens so that we can influence, you know, health outcomes in our patients. And that's something that's just really important to me. So when the epigenetic literature started to hit me, it was around 20, 2013 or so that it was sufficiently accumulating in my, you know, in my email, et cetera, that I was, you know, really feeling like I needed to tussle with it. You know, I need to understand what this, this field is about. It is a relatively new field. It, it, it grew massively af after we mapped the genome. So in the early 2000s, we figured out the hum all of our, the human DNA, what all the genes were. We've got about 23,000 of them. We figured it out. And then we, what we quickly realized, what science, science quickly realized was that just as you said, our genes aren't our destiny. In other words, we thought we would have the Rosetta Stone when that happened of, you know, these are the genes that cause heart disease. These are the genes that cause diabetes. These are the genes that cause autoimmunity. We thought we would have this roadmap to addressing all the chronic diseases. And what we realized was that it was incredibly more complex. We didn't have this roadmap and then enter in the era of epigenetics. And that is, you know, how we influence what genes are on and what genes are off. And to your point, it's lifestyle. So, here these papers are coming across my desk. Early on, the bulk of the research was in um, cancer. So cancer incredibly efficiently takes over epigenetics from us. The tumor microenvironment takes over gene expression and sort of turns genes on and off. It wants for its proliferation and survival. Like, I, I mean, to me, that's such an offense. You know, it's like, no, I'm not going to let, I'm going to get in the way. I do not want cancer taking over gene expression for its growth and survival and to basically kill me. And the interesting thing was that the, the main, one of the main epigenetic marks, as it's called, one of the main ways we regulate gene, gene expression is something called DNA methylation. And methylation is something that I studied a lot in the laboratory. We measured it, you know, we measure this fundamental pathway. This the, methylation is just a carbon and three hydrogens, such a fundamental molecule in life, in like all life forms. And we're making tons of it. And we're using this little guy to do things like metabolize estrogen or to detox from you know, different toxic compounds or to make adrenaline or to make dopamine. We'd use this compound. We put it on 
certain structures and we take it off and we change the behavior. And we're using it in every cell in the body, basically doing this all the time. And it turns out that methylation is a huge player in influencing what genes are on and what genes are off. So I knew from my laboratory background a lot about methylation, how we make it, where it's a problem, et cetera. Generally speaking, in functional medicine, we're thinking about needing to support methylation with B12, with folate, et cetera. So if you're familiar with those nutrients, B12, folate, you know, even B6, uh, betaine, et cetera, choline, the good nutrient in eggs, all of these nutrients are to push methylation forward. Folate during pregnancy is is in part to really optimize methylation of, of the, you know, the fetus of building this baby. Um, but it turns out that it's a huge, huge, huge player in gene expression. What's interesting and what, what really stopped me in my tracks was that we can have an imbalance of methylation. It's not just that you want to turn it up. In some cases, you need, you need to turn it up. But in some cases, you need to turn it down. You need to influence what genes are methylated, which generally turns them off. So you want bad genes off methylated and you want your good genes your protective genes on you don't want them to have a lot of methylation so we want balanced methylation in our in our genome and this is what was interesting to me and made me begin to think about you know not just b12 and folate but more broadly how we influence this balance and i'll just take a pause there but um so it was my lab coming into clinical practice, translating the science into, you know, how do we need to be thinking about optimizing DNA methylation, optimizing epigenetics, and that's, you know, for my patients, for the people who are coming to see me. And that's what's what prompted me to, to create this program. Yeah, and I think that's a fundamental concept in nutrition that people do not understand enough. The concept that you can have too much of a good thing. There's yeah. never one answer. And that's why for me, like, and I think for you as well in reading your book, taking a food first approach yeah. is always the right way because the way that you know, nutrients often coexist in foods, they, they yeah. have a balance. So I know, you know, a big thing for you as it is for me is things like polyphenols, which tend to turn off some of the, you know, activation of the genes to, to have that balance. And so in many of these foods, you'll have a combination of, of folate and polyphenols to get yes. that right equation. So I, th I think that that idea of balance, and so that's why I love, you know, in looking through your book, Younger You, that you really do, of course, supplements play an important role because our soil quality has deteriorated so much. We've learned a lot about how specific nutrients in higher concentrations may help people who need them more. But I think the idea of food first is, is, is what I love so much about that. So so let's let's kind of jump right in because you 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 do a great job of going through you know what's really important and you have um, I, I love kind of your so talk a little bit about some of the foods because one of the other things is that for me people don't eat nutrients they eat food and so by taking a food first approach I think that's really the way to and then you know smart supplementation rounding out the lifestyle so, yeah, so yeah. you did well just talk first of all talk to uh, us a little bit about your study because you were involved you were the lead author on 
arguably the most significant epigenetic study to date in the real world, which I I cannot emphasize to listeners the importance of because, you know, I think you're a clinician, I'm a clinician, you're a researcher as well, but, you know, we can we can look in lab test tubes, we can look in very isolated substances, but to look in humans in a interventional trial, that's really the what we need as clinicians to drive our patient care. So so tell us about your your study yeah. and even any updates. So I, yeah. I, you say yeah, yeah. in your book, you say you're doing a follow up as you're writing the book. So I'm curious where yes. you are now, and then we can go into some of the specifics. Yeah, it's so exciting. I mean, first of all, going back to your your idea of, you know, food as medicine, yeah, and the sophisticated combinations. A forkful of salad, I just got through eating a huge one, like just one single forkful of a well-designed salad it has hundreds of thousands of compounds that interact synergistically with themselves with my microbiome, they're transformed, they're absorbed, and they massively regulate epigenetics, they regulate gene expression. But you're right, it's such a powerful combination. And it helps balance methylation, you know, and specifically my area DNA methylation. So, but you know what, so does exercise. In fact, let me just tell you this crazy thing as I move into the story, exercise, like when we look at gene expression and the influence on gene expression acts like a big bowl of kale. So sometimes I'll tell people, you know, it's like the other veggie, (laughs) you know, the exercise has this exquisite influence on the epigenome, on DNA methylation, you know, like these amazing greens and polyphenols. It's, it's so cool. And so that was part of our prescription as well. But um, I was blessed to get a grant to study this. And you are, are, you're right. It's the first, you know, controlled trial looking at this with a control group who didn't do the intervention and, and a study group that did the intervention. And then we compared them. Um, the first finding, so we looked at the whole, what they call methylome. Uh, we looked at the DNA, we looked at gene expression as dictated by, you know, DNA methylation. We could, the big finding that we published on and that the younger you is is primarily about is that we were the first study of its kind and really maybe the second or third study ever to show um, that you could reverse biological age. So biological age, how fast we're physically aging, not our chronological age, is measured looking at DNA methylation patterns. And so we could see as compared to our control group, we slowed biological age with, we changed DNA methylation with um, over three years, like so significantly within eight weeks time. And it's amazing. It's, it was this huge, huge, very exciting finding. Um, it got a lot of attention. I mean, I'm somebody who I have a clinic. I educate other physicians. I'm a, I'm, I'm on faculty at the Institute for Functional. I'm sort of behind the scenes, like I'm somebody behind the scenes, but this study, you know, really sort of brought us front and center in the in the world. It was really quite extraordinary. And and they wanted, you know, I was given a book deal. And it seemed to me, you know, if we can slow the aging process with aging being the biggest risk factor for all chronic diseases, if we can turn the volume down on this massive risk factor, you know, the savings to humanity, I mean, the dollars, but but the you know the reduction in suffering. I mean, all of it is yeah. massive. And one of the reviewers on my publication said, "This is broadly adoptable. Like this is something 
anyone can take these principles and incorporate them. And there was kind of an urgency to that, to that message. This isn't a program that I want to sit on in my little clinic here in uh, Newtown, Connecticut. You know, this is something that the world needs and we need to keep studying. Can I ask you a question? Because I I just want listeners to understand this even better. How exactly does a snapshot of your, you know, methylation status indicate biologic age? And, and, and also just explaining to people, biologic age is, is basically the age of your cells, which is very different from your chronologic age. It's why some people hopefully myself included, I'm 53. I don't think I look 53, but it's why some people look, act, feel, and have diseases of younger people, uh, the, you know, and, and it's, it's the phenotype, which is, is kind of what you are, not, not what you're genetically predisposed to be. But how does a snapshot of methylation, is it just that we've averaged over time, like millions of people that we know are this age and don't have these diseases? How did we get there with the research a little bit? How do we know that this snapshot of methylation reflects your biologic age? Yeah, it's a pretty cool stuff. It's, it's, it's cool. And, and the clocks have evolved. I mean, it's just a it's a it's a it's a conversation unto itself. So the first biological age clock was put on the map by Steve Horvath out in your neck of the woods, UCLA. Actually, he's now at Altos Lab in um, San Diego. Um, although maybe he's still at UCLA. Anyway, he's he, he's the you know hopefully the, the Nobel Prize yeah. you know person who will who who figured this out. And he originally so he wanted to. Uh, look at DNA methylation patterns that were predictive of chronological age. So the original clocks were trained on chronological age. For example, in utero, we're negative age (laughs) because they're not born yet. And then, you know, they were, he was able to track reliably, like, with a um, correlation coefficient of almost one, so 0.96, he could reliably predict over the lifespan you know, chronological age. If it was a one-to-one relationship, this DNA methylation pattern says you're 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 52 or 53, which no, you don't look. But you know, <laughs> if it was a one-to-one relationship, the only information we would have by looking at DNA methylation is how old somebody is chronologically, and it would not be useful. It would right because you could just stupid. ask them. <laughs> yeah, you could just. <laughs> when were you born? <laughs> exactly, it wouldn't be useful. But that wiggle room, that little imperfection was actually more predictive than chronological age of morbidity and mortality, of health status and life. Isn't that extraordinary? So he was on to something like spine tingling, this information baked into our epigenome is a more reliable predictor of how long and well we will live than our chronological age. And that was the first clock. And that's the clock that we've used in our two papers where we're, the clocks are evolving though. And so what we're, we're using, you know, next generation clocks as well, which basically just means is that they're becoming more and more sensitive predictors of the aging journey. It's extraordinary and interesting conversation, but it's, it's, you know, it's where it's at in terms of measuring biological age. You don't stop thinking about, you know, elevated blood sugar and testing that and, you know, heart, uh, looking at your blood pressure and obviously weight, etc. All of the known 
tools that we use aren't thrown out, but we have this additional really important evolving tool um, that can sensitively measure the aging journey and is influenced, you know, we're seeing by certain interventions. We can see certain things push it forward and, you know, accelerate age and certain things, you know, turn it down. Right. And there's a lot of synergy, actually, when you between traditional testing. There's a lot of correlation mm-hmm. and yes. synergy between traditional. So, so let's get into that then in terms of, because I think this is really important. And this is what I'm doing with my new company, Ahara, as well, um, in, in terms of the epigenetics um, and tying that into uh, genetics ep- and, and biomarkers as well. But let's talk about, um, you know, accelerators like what really what what is proven and then i think you do a you do a tremendous job and i don't want to give away everything in your book because i want people to buy it because it's great but some of the high level stuff and i can also talk about what we're doing at ahara but so what are some of the biggest in terms of like like right now tomorrow what and you know what's interesting well i'm gonna interrupt sorry i'm asking you a question then i'm interrupting because i mean what <laughs> are the because yeah. uh, i'm a big believer in being honest too but so you know what are the accelerate and i'll also tell the audience too that i'm aging so my biologic age is about five years younger than my chronologic age um and i'm aging at about uh 24% slower every year than average. Um, and I bet I could do even better, except for that I have a little too much wine. So speaking of that, <laughs> let's talk. I, I, I would be 12 if I wouldn't drink so much wine. But no, That's so let's funny. talk about, you know, accelerators <laughs> first. And then because yeah. I think what happens is I, I do so much of the good stuff that it offsets the fact that I'm a stress case and I drink too much wine because I'm so stressed <laughs> and I don't sleep well. But that's enough about me. You, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I appreciate you being honest. It's important. I mean, when yeah. you're when you're in this space, people tend to, um, you know, want to say their biological age is 17, even though they're right. 65, and you know they haven't actually eaten in the last you know decade. <laughs> right, right. But in fact, life is life is life is real, and it and it happens. And when I was actually writing the book, my biological age, I was exquisitely dialed in. I was dialed very dialed into it. It's amazing because writing a book is pretty stressful. But I was so intentionally living our program. My program works. It works for me. Um, my biological age was at my last measure was about fourteen years younger because this program really works. However things got stressful, like doing a book promotion, all of that. And I have a, I have a, a five-year-old at home and it's, I, I, you know, I, I need, I do this annually. So I'll be, I'll be grabbing my next, my next measurement actually semi-annually in a, in a couple of months. And I'm like, you know, it's, 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 I, it's, I don't think it's going to be as pretty. And that's because to your point, things that can influence biological age, of course, you know, we know alcohol can push it forward, um, but it's not as like, it, you know, an alcohol abuse disorder will accelerate biological age potently. I think it's a little equivocal, you know, if you're having a glass or two at night, I don't know. I, I mean, Yay! I'm less. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That yeah. made it totally worth having you on the podcast. <laughs> it's, that's so funny. Yeah. I'm I'm not one to, there's my colleagues in practice will like stop drinking. I'm one to like, you know, soften it, even though I don't actually drink. I don't drink, but it's, it's funny. I don't, yeah, I don't, I think it's a little equivocal there. I don't know that you can be too, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, but alcohol use disorder, totally pro-aging and multiple studies demonstrate that stress is a pro-aging, you know, variable. I, I, you know, in the clock that we use, so this flagship Horvath clock, 25% of it responds to cortisol. 
these glucocorticoid response wow. elements on the genes, yeah, they are, are part of the clock. And that to me, at least about this measurement, suggests that stress is gasoline on the fire of aging. Like it just is. And it really hit it home for me. And I, you know, we included a meditation in our in our study. Um, and I just, I think it's huge. I mean, and I think the data really speak to it. And we know now from, you know, more re- current research that stress episodes will age people, but they can, but once that stress is resolved, they will go back. So for instance, a surgery, a pregnancy, um, you know, just a, a real assault on the body can have this pro-aging effect, but then you can turn it back. The chronic grind of uncontrolled stress that we tend to experience, um, you know, in the world. I mean, that really needs some attention around it to uh, keep it in balance. Be it a couple of glasses of wine. No, just kidding. (laughs) You know, like some exercise, meditation, whatever. But that chronic stress grind, I think, can have an Kind of like chronic inflammation. I mean, and and there's a lot of synergy with, obviously, with chronic inflammation. And and, and, And uh, aging. That's fascinating, though. The 25, is that the same with the, like, you know, I I think we both use, well, I'll mention it, you know, tests from a specific company. But is that the same with the more modern clocks, the second and third generation clocks? Because that's a a big number. I mean, 25%. 25% of it. It's bigger than any other there's no other variable in the clock to my knowledge that is is impactful as these you know the glucocorticoid response elements um um you know no like the clocks are all different so there is some overlap but what the percentages of glucocorticoid response elements in the other clocks i don't know um but i but i do know that other clocks have captured the stress phenomena yeah but that's a that's a that's an awesome question and i just simply don't have the answer for that no but it's all super interesting so let's let's go into to so first of all i mean just to give a a high level i think you know quality sleep is very important you talk about that in your book that's a whole nother discussion exercise we can talk a little bit about your approach to exercise at the end i mean but i would say also even decreasing sedentary behavior that's a big thing that i push i mean we sit so much more as a society and it's you know the sitting 10 hours a day can't be offset by 30 minutes at the gym it just can't but but let's jump into food because that's my um, you know that's my favorite topic I'm a nutrition doctor so so talk about like on a high level uh what what you what you did in your study there's one thing that I'm going to push back on a little bit and I think you know what it is probably but what you did in general in your study and and kind of some (laughs) of the uh huh I'm well, sure, okay, I'm the, the, the liver, yeah, the, or, yeah, the okay, organ yeah, liver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, you know, for me, it's like, yeah. Ah, ah. I know, um, I know. We have them in capsules. I actually I have a bot. Sometimes I have it right here on my desk if I'm doing an interview. Um, okay. Yeah. So you're right. You're right. People asked me many, 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 many times, you know, what, who I, what I think the heavy lift is. And likely the nutrition component, you know, is just the major player because as we just talked about, just the extraordinary sophisticated packet of information on every forkful of food. Like it's, it's, it's just mind bogglingly complex how far we can influence physiology you know, with this forkful of food and think about multiple exposures over the day. You know, you have three well-designed meals. You're providing this extraordinary information. I just, I think of food as information. So our study was built 
brick by brick, the dietary program was built with optimal gene expression, specifically DNA methylation in mind. Everything in there is going to favorably influence DNA methylation. Um, This means we need a lot of methyl donors. So uh, that carbon and three hydrogen, sometimes in the science it's denoted, you'll see a a, a DNA double helix, and then you'll see these red lollipops. And those are the, that's the methylation that marks dotting the, the genome. And so we need to make a lot of these red lollipops. As we age, we don't make them as efficiently, unfortunately. So how do we make the red lollipops? The ingredients are, as we mentioned, folate, B12, choline, betaine. There's you know, a handful of minerals and other B vitamins. Even fish oil can influence the methylation cycle, making the red lollipops. So we need those. As you said, a food-forward approach is by far the safest and most important, but there is a place for supplements. We didn't use them in the study. We wanted to look at the food influence. So methyl donor foods are, you know, greens, are mushrooms, eggs, liver. So liver is a multivitamin in a food matrix. I know it's pretty disgusting. <laughs> a lot of people aren't even going to go there, but if you're willing to, it's super important. We've got some good recipes in the book or you can do what I frequently do, and that is just take caps. But it's a multi—it's—it's it's the most nutritionally dense food. Uh, you don't even need to use it often. In fact, we only recommend three servings a week because it's just so dense. Or just again, do caps. Um, so nuts, seeds. Uh, some protein. Our study uses animal protein, um, but we do have a vegetarian and vegan version in the book. It would be fabulous to study those, but we haven't yet. Um, So these are the methyl donors. This is to make the red lollipops. But then exquisitely important is that you need to direct traffic where these red lollipops go. You don't want to shut down protective genes. If you're just taking a bucket of supplements, a bucket of methyl donor supplements, you're not providing your body with the information to direct where these red lollipops go. And there's some suggestion that doing this, just supplements, could potentially direct red lollipops onto genes, could potentially make us shut down genes that we really want on. So extraordinarily, the polyphenols that you talked about really seem to direct traffic on where these lollipop, uh, where these, where methylation is happening, where these lollipops are placed and it directs them towards a more favorable um, presentation. And that's what we showed in our study, which is amazing. We showed in eight weeks time, we could rearrange DNA methylation where these red lollipops were on our study participants to, to a more useful pattern in eight as compared to the control group. And I think it's the combination of those nutrients working together. I love it so much. I can't even tell you. And and it's funny because before methylation and epigenetics was even on my radar, because I'm I'm newer to the game than you are, probably just in the last five years that it's been on my radar as a clinician. Um, I've written two books about the healing powers of herbs and spices, head to toe benefits. And when you talk about polyphenols, I know rosemary is one of your, you know, kind of key 12 foods or whatever it is. And, and it's, it's, so it's, it's, 
And I, I didn't fully, I, I understood so much. I remember when I was researching my book, seeing how things like time was involved in every aspect of cancer formation, you know, inhibiting breakdown, growth, and, and in some way favorably impacted every aspect. And, and I think now that I look at, now that I understand what you're saying, it makes even more sense how these, I mean, cause herbs and spices, I just, they're such a low hanging fruit. And most Americans, we use salt and pepper, you know, and it's yeah. just, it's something that uh, transcends, you know, you can be keto, you can be vegan, you can be whatever you want to be, and you can eat more herbs and spices. Right. And then, right. and I love how, how simply you explain it, I think is brilliant. And just one more thing, because I think eggs, you know, have gotten a bad rap. And, yes. and for me, like one of the key nutrients with my new company is choline. And that mm-hmm. is, I, I think... And the one interesting thing about genetics then to me or nutrigenetics is that that is one, I think genetics is like the wild west in nutrition. And, and a lot of companies have said it's a lot more important than it actually is. But when it comes to choline, and I have, I've had, you know, Dr. Steve Zizel on my podcast as well. That's a really interesting area. And I think, you know, in the eighties, yeah. when we stopped eating eggs, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater right. there. And, and, yep. and it's concerning. So I, I was really glad to see that, you know, you're, you're talking about eggs in the, in the context that they should be. And the nice thing is, you know, they have, you know, in the yolk, as you say, the choline, the lutein, the zeaxanthin, B12, methylation. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, so a lot of yeah. these foods as part of an overall balanced diet, you know, I, I think it sounds corny, but, um, and then, and then, so well, let so- me just, I want to just, before you jump into that question, I want to say, yeah, you know, ditto on the extra, the wonderment of eggs, um, and the combination of the foods, but I think, so these polyphenols are, as you just said, pleiotrophic. They do a ton of favorable stuff all over the body. That's what pleiotrophy is. And my thinking um, is that maybe they're doing this because they're so impactfully changing gene expression. So this the root shift is way up here with altering gene expression. And then downstream is they shut down cancer, they shut down inflammation, they're antioxidant, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's- Yeah, and I think they're probably, you know, I think you would agree that they're probably impacting microbial gene expression, which may be just as important, if not more, because they're coming into contact with the microbiome and the gut. Well, and they're- they're transformed by the micro. So some right. of the compounds, not all, but some of them have to be transformed by a microbiome. Right. You need a healthy microbiome for them to become bioactives. And that's the exciting field that we haven't even we scratched the surface on, which is metabolomics. Yeah. And that's like well, that that's a whole nother pot. We I think I feel like we're gonna be best buddies, like we're gonna stay in touch because we have so <laughs> much synergy. But so let's real briefly, we only have a few minutes left. Let's talk about some of, of the, you know, a, a few more age accelerators, because you've got some yeah. few, you know, that I think are worth talking and just kind of presenting and then uh, just a little bit about supplements and then we'll wrap it up and I want people to to buy your book because I think it's excellent and you have tons Thank of you. amazing Thanks. recipes that are really focused on this. And again, I mean, my new company, my website, all of our recipes are going to be very synergistic awesome. with everything Yay. that you do. So I'm, I'm you awesome. make me even more excited about what I'm doing. Yay, and thank you so for your cool. work. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of the book is our nutrient appendix. So we have the first and only that I'm aware of epinutrient appendix. And there's 30 pages of where these epinutrient players are. And I say to the most finicky patient, you know, or individual, or when I was being interviewed, I was interviewed in 
I was doing an interview in Iowa. They were in a radio show in Iowa. I was here and they are steak country. And he just kept asking me if meat was okay. And I'm like, you (laughs) you know, yeah, it's got methionine. But anyway, uh, for the pickiest individual who thinks they're going to be allergic to healthy eating, there, is, there are foods you're consuming already that are epinutrients, and you can emphasize those. But anyway, so that's a super favorite part of my book. But in terms of accelerants, so things that we want to avoid, we know, of course, sugar. We know processed foods. We know, you know, charred foods. I mean, there's evidence for the things that we've known in functional integrated medicine for a long time. Toxins. Toxins via multiple mechanisms damage the DNA and the epiDNA, the red lollipops on top. I mean, they just wreak havoc via multiple mechanisms. Um, certain medications we want to be mindful of. If, we're, if we need to take them, they can negatively influence and we need to think about that and, you know, have our antidote, which, which could be using the program. We've used it in practice for that reason on many occasions. Um, lack of exercise, of course, to your point, imbalanced exercise. So that for that person who just needs to be a warrior all the time, excessive can be pro-aging. Now, that doesn't mean, I just interviewed somebody, um, uh, a friend of mine who's an Ironman triathlete, and he's very, very healthy, and he's young. I think he's 73 now, but he's such a young 73. For him, his body can handle that. For me, if I did an Ironman triathlete, even though I'm physically very active, uh, that would be an age accelerant for me. So, it's the balance. It's the right amount. Lack of sleep, as we mentioned, you know, stress, not doing something to remedy the sort of assault of stress that all of us experience here, um, you know, is is an age accelerant. Not drinking enough water. Like there's just, you know, there's there's some, some of the obvious basic ones. stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, some of it is basic, but I do think the idea of balance is is yes. is is a is an ongoing theme that I think. So so I wish I could talk to you for another hour, but um, I can't. But maybe I'll have you back. But so where can people go to learn more about you? Where can they follow your research? What's yeah. the best way to continue this journey that I hope that we've inspired people to take? Thank you. We do have another publication. You can find that, and I'm actually writing up a third now, um, at just at my website. You can just go to drkarafitzgerald.com, um, or you can go to youngeryou.com. Both of those places I am. You can find me on Instagram. We've got an active social um, following now, uh, which is, is just, again, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. You can find me there. I love, actually, I'm in there myself. Like, it's the one place I go, and I'll chit-chat with people, so you can always ping me there. Um but yeah, drkarafitzgerald.com. The book is everywhere. You know, it's at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. Um, but yeah, everything that um, we have an active blog and podcast. So yeah, there's a there's That's a bunch fabulous. of fabulous. What's your podcast called? New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. Got it. All right. I'll have to put that on the list too. Well, Dr. Fitzgerald, again, thank you so much. It's been lovely to finally connect yeah. with you. And I hope this isn't the last time. Um, I, know. I think we are very like-minded. And and again, the book is Younger You. You have all the information to follow Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. And um, I wish you the best of luck. And now I'm a very competitive person. So now you've inspired me to compete with you for being <laughs> younger. So uh, I'm going to think about what I can can do here because I'm not going to give up my wine and I'm but a you little bad with the stress. Yeah. When I, re- when I retest after yeah. I've been. Okay. Let, let me we'll know when you retest. Me. We'll stay in touch and then <laughs> we'll. we'll... Okay. Sounds good. Thank you again. <laughs> Take ciao. care. Bye. 
I really hope that you found the information in this podcast helpful. I know I did, and I welcome your feedback because I'm doing this for you. So if there's topics that you want to learn about, something that you want to learn more about, if there's something that you want to explain further that I've talked about, please let me know. Comment on my Instagram page, send me an email, melina at drmelina.com, and definitely hit that subscribe button because I'm going to have great new content every single week and I don't want you to miss an episode. That's it for now. Stay practically healthy.